Hi, my name is Magdalena Morty and I look after the cultural programme here at Second Home. In this episode, we have two amazing authors, Britt Bennett and Ayelet Waldman. They're discussing their approaches to creative writing, parenting, and a life in a world haunted by both our shared and differentiated histories. This event was in support of our amazing Second Home Hollywood members, 826LA. They're a fantastic organisation that help young students to develop and explore their creative writing skills. Enjoy! Good morning and thank you all for joining us. Uh, thank you, Second Home, for setting up the conversation. Uh, my name is Joe Arquios and I'm the Executive Director of A26LA. For those of you who are unfamiliar with A26LA, we're a writing and tutoring organization. Uh, we have locations in the Mar Vista and Echo Park neighborhoods of Los Angeles. We also have sites on two campuses on, in high schools, uh, one in uh, East LA and one in South LA. Um, we, uh, for the past year, we've been supporting our students online and have learned a lot of new ways of, of delivering our services, and, uh, but it's been a, a wonderful experience as well, um, even with all the challenges. Our mission is to help students uh, who attend Title I schools uh, in LA with their creative and expository writing skills. We believe that every student deserves to write their own future. Uh, as a writing organization, we are especially honored to co-host this event with two accomplished authors. Britt Bennett is the author of The Vanishing Half, which debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and The Mothers. Ayelet Waldman is a New York Times bestselling author as well. Her most recent books are A Really Good Day and Love and Treasure. Uh, both Britt and Ayelet have written about the different ways that families are impacted by history and identity. At A26LA, we witness daily how systemic racism, poverty, and now the pandemic affect our students and their families. And while the solutions to such enormous issues are multifaceted, we believe that the ability to describe one's experiences and imagine a new chapter is vital. Uh, if you are here today, I expect that you too believe in the power of words. Um, I hope you'll seek out more information about H26LA on our website, h26la.org, and consider donating or volunteering and getting involved with us. And now without further ado, I'll turn things over to Isla and Britt. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, how are um, you? I'm good. We're um, from opposite sides of the country right now. You're in Brooklyn. Have you been in Brooklyn this whole time? I have, yeah, I've been here since 2019. So I was, uh, yeah, for the most part, I've been here. <laughs> How's it been so far? I, I mean, you know, we know how it's been in New York, but how, have you been <laughs> able to work? I guess what I mean, like, have you been able to work? Uh, I mean, I have been able to, I think just because um, the alternative was so bleak, you know, I spent most <laughs> of the quarantine just by myself. Um, so if I wasn't writing, I think I truly would have completely unraveled. Um, so um, I have been able to work. It's been a little bit, I think this period of the quarantine has been the hardest for me, productive, like productivity wise. Like mm -hmm. I think last March and April, I was able to kind of put my head down and work. And here at this point where you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, that's where I think it's been the hardest to focus. That's for sure been the case for me too. Like I at the beginning of, um, I have, I've, I have had a, a challenge working the whole time, but I think at the beginning I got super focused on, you know, founding this nonprofit to support restaurants in Oakland and Berkeley. And that took a lot of my time. And then I had a bunch of scripts to write so I could, those are very, you know, contained, but, um, I, I thought to myself, okay, this is going to last for a long time. I'm just going to get this novel done. It's been hanging over my head for years. 
nothing like not a <laughs> word it's really yeah striking. I, I mean I think well I would think I was lucky because I had a project that I had started like I think if I had mm-hmm. to start something during the quarantine I absolutely would not have been able to do it so I had the project that I was like a couple years into it and mm-hmm. otherwise I think com- like no there's no way I would have been able to start something new right now yeah it's so strange and like I and I think everybody is agreeing with that um what was that article in the New York Times recently I'm sorry my like completely spacing about the word that they <laughs> languishing I was like right. yes this period is such period of languishing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there wore, was a thing in, oh, I think there was a thing in the Atlantic that kind of compared it to senioritis, which is yeah. a weird, like, other way of thinking about it. But it does feel like, it feels like, yeah, spring semester of your senior year where you're just, like, ready to break free. <laughs> and I know it's so completely crazy to, to me because I've been able to work. I went back to work when my kids were a couple months old. I was just like in between breastfeeding. I would go out to a cafe. I would get my thousand words. I'd come home. There was never, you know, getting my work done was not ever an issue. I, I would tell people I don't believe in procrastination. I don't believe in writer's <laughs> block. It's just a matter of sitting your ass down in the chair. And now for a year, I've been like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate to some of that. <laughs> Are you, I wanted to ask you, I know that HBO has, um, as the vanishing half, are you writing the scripts for that or? No, I'm not. I did not want to do that. Um, I, I'm not a fan of adapting my own work. Um, so I didn't want to do that. Uh, but I'm an executive producer. I'm, I'm involved weighing in on, on, um, on what the writers are up to. So it's been a fun to me. It's been a, like the ideal level of involvement of being on the call and giving notes and all of that, mm-hmm. but not Who's having to be. Uh, Aziza Barnes and Jeremy Harris are co-writing it. Cool. So yeah, it's been nice. It's been nice. Uh, Michael and I have been adapting Cavalier and Clay. That's that's like the one thing I actually accomplished this this past sort of this last six months of quarantine is we got about five scripts done for um, wow. Cavalier and Clay. Yeah, wow. it's been somehow you know because they begin and they end. It's been easier for me to think about doing that than um, do you than thinking about this novel. Well, do you find it, I mean, I guess one, do you find it easier or harder to adapt with somebody? Like, do you find that helpful to work with somebody on it? And two, is it different adapting? Like I talk to writers sometimes who don't like, I was talking to someone who did not like adapting her own work, but loved adapting other people's books. So I wonder if that's also an experience. I've done both. Um, I definitely feel freer when I'm adapting my own work just to ignore Mm. everything. And just be like, well, this sucks and throw it aside. <laughs> um, but I love adapting, adapting Michael. And Michael and I have a very specific way that we work, which maybe isn't the way everybody works. But like we, we outline together or and actually nowadays I'm most, we sort of brainstorm together. I write the first draft of the outline he writes he sort of makes it beautiful and then we do the same thing with the scripts I'll write the oh, first wow. draft send it to him and then we go so um and then I'll write like he'll do the second which is a big rewrite and then I'll do the third I always say like oh, Michael wow. makes it spectacular and then I like roll back the spectacular a little bit <laughs> so, but I love adapting him because he writes in very he writes in scenes so a writer who writes in scenes with dialogue is much more um, is much easier to adapt because you can kind of lift the scenes and lift the dialogue. Writers right. who write kind of more summary or a lot of interiority 
um, it's a lot more challenging. Like the biggest challenge I think with screenwriting is trying to figure out like the beauty I think of fiction is it's the only medium where you actually can live in the mind of somewhere else where you sort of experience what they're thinking and um, you, it's all obviously it's all visual in, um, in screenwriting. So you have to figure out how, how do you get, how do you, make the audience understand what someone's thinking when a novel has lived so clearly in someone's mind. Right. So um, yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah. um, That's what I found impossible about it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's really hard. Like a lot of it, it's, it's great if you have an actor or actress already attached because then you can be like, nah, she can do this. I'll just do, (laughs) just make one of those faces, Allison, you know, those. (laughs) (laughs) So did you ever, did you get a chance to get out of Brooklyn at all? Um, I did. I did. I was in California. I was in LA uh, for most of this winter. Um, I just oh, I couldn't do the pandemic winter by myself. So I had to, uh, I went to stay with my family for winter. So it was nice to get out um, and to, of course, be someplace warm, but also just to be around family and, uh, and that. So, um, so yeah, that was my, my sort of brief, uh, my brief journey away. Um, but it's good. It's good to be back. I think it's it's uh, it's kind of hard to reconcile. I think all of the just the experiences of this past year and like returning to the place where I was quarantining alone has been like weirdly. I don't know. Like there's like emotion attached to that that I didn't expect. Um, but it does feel so different now. You know, just the feeling in the city feels completely different than the sheer like apocalyptic terror of a mm. year ago. Right. I know it's so strange when I think of how that felt. I mean, I'm wondering, like, you know, I think I think I am not going to be at all interested in the first round of fiction written about this because it's going to be way too close and way too new. And I think I mean, I know I'm guilty of this. Like I try always to write my way out of a emotion or write my way out of a problem or an experience and a lot of times the first things like I I lost a baby once and um the first thing I did was write a ghost story about a woman haunted through her um baby monitor by the ghost of her dead baby and that was I I really liked it but like I was creepy as hell like (laughs) really like that was for me that was yeah. and then by the time I like worked my way to write the book that I actually think really was like a successful I used that experience in a way that it was actually successful literally uh, from a literary perspective and not just from an emotional one um it right. took a while like right it has to sit in your head for a while maybe phase two pandemic books I think will be you know interesting. <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know that I'll ever be interested in reading them, to be honest, like for myself. Uh, but it also like I think about the idea of writing anything, even if you're like not trying to write a pandemic book, if you're writing anything that spans, you know, 2020, 2021, like how else, like what else would be? It's like ignoring like World War One or something like you kind <laughs> of have to, you know, but I, I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know. I don't know. I, it's, it's hard for me to, I think it's also hard for me to draw meaning from anything. Like when you're still in the moment, you know, like we're Mm -hmm. still to like, to sort of produce meaning of what this meant, if it meant anything, you know, Um, that's something that I find really difficult. But a lot of my friends who are teaching at uh, universities are already starting to get pandemic short stories from their students, uh, which I think has been, it's been difficult for them to kind of have to uh, have to parse through of just, I think emotionally, even as we're still in this moment. 
I always say that like all my friends who've taught, you know, you can always tell there's, there's every year there's a rash of like exquisitely crafted first short story collections about growing up, about uh, spending a year as a young person in a place that's really cold, a really small Iowa town. And <laughs> I feel like, like at least now, maybe that class of, uh, of writing program graduates will not be writing exquisitely crafted short stories about, you know, bleak Iowa winters. They'll be writing exquisitely crafted short stories about being in their apartments. <laughs> yeah. Going to remote bleak Iowa winter school. Right. I mean, I think also the thing that will, I guess, potentially be interesting about it is because we all, it feels like we all experienced such different pandemics. Mm -hmm. Like there are people whose families were decimated. There are people right. who like moved to a second house and were fine. Like there are so many right. different sort of dramatically different experiences. Some people who just never stopped like doing what they were doing and continued to like people who weren't, you know, quarantining really, or people couldn't quarantine. Um, I think that the, that, I guess that, that to me is what, what might be narratively interesting. Uh, right. Although I'm sure we're going to get the same kind of, you know, <laughs> 20 somethings in Brooklyn, whatever, whatever that we're going to get <laughs> from it. Um, but I do think that that kind of wide uh, range of what everybody's experienced to, will, will, will be interesting narratively. Although I don't know that I will have the stomach to kind of revisit it. I, I'm very ready to move on from this this period of, of my life. <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree with you. I wonder, um, but it is funny, like, is everyone just going to skip it? Like, will this contemporary stories just start in like 2022 <laughs> or everyone will be writing about 2018 and they're just going to be like a hole in yeah. the, you know, in the library of Congress, like right around the period. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready um, for Have that. you been able to read like, have you been able to read with the same kind of focus as before? I would say not the same type of focus. Um, I do think that audiobooks have helped um, a bit. Totally. Um, my pandemic hobby has been walking around and listening to podcasts or audiobooks. So that's been helpful, I think. Um, so not the same level of focus, but I think for me, the moment I felt kind of like my brain returned like last March, April was when I first like started to read again. And I had like a really long stretch uh, of just like, I'm not a fast reach reader by nature, but I had a very long stretch of just like tearing through books. And then my book came out and that just kind of ground everything to a halt. Um, but but, um, but that was kind of the moment where I finally felt like my attention span had returned uh, when I wasn't just doom scrolling all day that last March, right. April. Um, so yeah, not, as, not in the way that I wanted to or used to, but I think the audiobooks have helped to supplement it and also to like, give me, uh, give me, make me feel purpose when I'm going like on my sort of aimless walks just to get fresh air. It feels, it feels like I'm accomplishing something, even if I'm not going anywhere, it just gives you that feeling. I think when you get to listen to a good story. That's the same thing that happened to me too. I like, I've actually had a really hard time. I've never experienced this before in my life where I wasn't, I mean, I'm, I always have a book. I mean, reading fiction is like, um, like we said before, like it's my only hobby. So, but I had a really hard time um, making meaning out of the fiction I was reading until I started, like I took, I don't do crafts. I'm like the least crafty person on earth, but I took up embroidery. I don't know why. I cannot explain why. Uh, first I embroidered a bunch of samplers that said fuck Trump and then I moved on <laughs> from that um 
and I would listen to audiobooks and I just went back like I was I just rolled it back. So first um I was listening with my husband and we listened to Middlemarch and I'm like okay now I know what this is and now this I can bring all the focus to bear and then we like listen to all the Jane Austen and we listened okay. to um we just saw the you know we're listening to things like that that we hadn't read in a really long time mm-hmm. and then kind of got a little more contemporary um in uh and actually listen to some nonfiction, which mm-hmm. is not something I, I don't usually read any nonfiction. So this was sort of good. But like that's what it took for me. It's like, you know, spending 36 hours yeah. listening to an audiobook while I embroider was actually pretty that's kind of um that's sort of what got me over my this this weird inability to focus. Yes. Um yeah I can definitely relate to that. Do you, do you talk about what you're working on now or is that a secret? Um, it's not a secret. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm working on third novel. It's a book about music. Um, so that has yeah. required a lot of reading books about music um, of varying levels of, of quality, but, um, but that has been fun nonetheless. Um, and a lot of playlists and sort of diving into a musical podcast about music I've gotten to Mm -hmm. a lot of those um, which feels like kind of a very organic form to learn about music because you can hear you know they can play the clips of the song as they're talking about it which is something I just really enjoy Um, so yeah that's been my uh, that's been a it's been a project I've been working on I say that I'm at the beginning of it I started it probably in 2018 so it's not mm-hmm. new, but I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm at that part of the book. Um, so it's still, but I've been, like I said, I was glad to have that to focus on during, I wrote a couple of drafts um, in quarantine and um, again, of varying levels of quality because this is my sort of solo quarantine, you know, slowly unraveling alone in my apartment draft. <laughs> so I cannot say that it's any good, but um but I think it was, I think in particular, that book was was so helpful to think about during the quarantine to read a book about, you know, music and concerts and people being together at parties and that type of world, a very sort of vivid world uh, that, that I think has been, it's been really nice to have that to focus on, um, even though it's it's been really stumping me. I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. What about you? Well, like I kept saying I've been most doing mostly television and ignoring this novel that um, I've had due for, I don't even want to think how many, I, I remember once hearing about a writer who was like five years late on a novel and being like, what <laughs> the hell is your problem? Just sit down and get your work done. And now I'm like, I just hope nobody from Knopf is on this Zoom. <laughs> um, but uh, well, right now what I'm doing is Jackie Woodson, you know, you, you know Jackie, don't you? Yeah, so, we're friends, yeah. Yeah, so Jackie and I have a show at Netflix. So that's what I'm working on. Um, that's cool. We're, it, we're pretty stoked about that. We're doing that with Shonda Rhimes' company, Shonda awesome. Land. And um, hopefully that will uh, move forward pretty soon. And Is it an adaptation or something completely different? No, it's this, um, it, it, well, ish. It's, yeah. it's kind of a springboard from her novel Behind You, which okay. is about a young... Um, kid who gets killed and but it, it's this kind of it's amazing immersion into uh, a kind of supernatural world based on African-American folklore 
So it's really, it's just like Jackie's imagination is this incredible wellspring of genius. And it's just, awesome. um, I'm just like, I'm just strapped on and I'm along for the ride. So cool. Really I great. can't wait to see that. <laughs> and then like a whole bunch of other TV projects. Um, I've just been kind of, I've just been really interested in screenwriting lately. So that's what I've been doing. I have like, um, you know, some shows with other writers and some of my own things that I'm working on. So that's fun. Yeah. Did you, do you find that move from fiction to TV? Do you find it generative, difficult to kind of move between those modes? I actually think it's really hard to move between the modes. Um, I used to say, no, I'll do one thing. I'll do the other. Yeah. But when I was doing that, I actually would spend, I would like write a book and then I would go back to some TV writing. I couldn't sort of, or I would write, I would write at least a, big you know a, a serious draft not those kind of nibble drafts but like a real mm -hmm. draft and now um I think one of the reasons that I maybe am not paying much attention is to to my book is because I'm sort of um more interested in these the tv stuff because even if you're writing a whole series so that it's like almost like a novel um there's a really great thing that happens along the way where you finish something Right. You begin it and then you're done with it and it right. happens pretty quickly it happens in like sometimes less than a month and that's been really satisfying so yeah you know, I, I can of... imagine that yeah <laughs> I don't know what that's like but I can imagine <laughs> I remember one of my novels took me I mean sometimes I write really quickly but one of my novels took me years and years and yeah. um I don't remember it bothering me that much. It was just like, okay, that's what I'm doing. The only time yeah. it's sort of annoying is when people say to you like, wait, are you still working on that book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's the similar thing that I feel sometimes writing nonfiction of just being like, yeah, the essay starts and it ends and you're done and you can move on from it versus like I said, this book I've been working on since 2018 and I'm like, yeah, I just started it. You know, that like moving <laughs> away from that, I, I definitely envy that. Totally. Can I ask what made you move to Brooklyn? Um, I was, well, I was teaching at the time. I was, uh, I was teaching at, uh, Columbia when I first got here. Um, and I think part of that was the teaching. Um, the other part was just kind of wanting something different. I, uh, been, grew up in California. Um, and then went to grad school in Michigan, moved back to California when I was done with grad school. Um, and I was kind of ready for a change. So, mm -hmm. um, it's been, I really love the city. I, I, hate that I moved here, uh, you know, as, as everything was about to, you know, sort of uh, the pandemic was about to begin. <laughs> I hate that. Um, but I had so much fun when I first got here and I'm hoping that on the other side of this pandemic, um, I'll be able to enjoy the city. I bet it'll be an amazing summer. I think so. I think it's going to be a great summer. It'll be hot. But it'll be <laughs> I we lived I lived in New York when I was um right after law school and also right after college and always assumed that I would live in New York being Cal like being from California uh, sort of living in California just seemed an impossible thought it wasn't something you did <laughs> if you were from New York it was like a million miles away I'd never really uh, you know it was like I saw it on eight is enough or something <laughs> my, my familiarity yeah. with with California but um now it's hard for me to imagine leaving here. And yeah. um, uh, I, for a long time, I would set my books on the East Coast because it just felt more natural. It felt like that's who I was and what made sense for my, like where I could get my brain. But now I actually feel like I go back to New York and I'm like, I don't, 
don't know this city anymore. I don't know how I yeah. can write about this city. I feel like, you know, I'm much more likely to be able to set a book in um, Prague than I am or Budapest <laughs> than I am in New York now because I know I have to do the research for a book set in Budapest. But right. I don't know. I, I would assume I would know things in New York and pe- and then I would be like, wait a minute, that's not really true. That's a, that has been true since like 1998. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I, I definitely love LA and I, and I love New York. Uh, I am, my heart is sort of split between those cities, I think a lot of ways. Um, but I have like increasingly begun to think of myself as a California writer. And I think mostly thought of myself as such when I was not in California. Like, I think when I was in Michigan, I realized like, yeah, I'm a California writer. Um, that this is what I'm interested in, the kind of mythologies surrounding California and the migration mm-hmm. to California that my family, you know, my dad is originally from LA. My, uh, my mom moved there from Louisiana. So that I think is one of the kind of migrations that happens in my book mm-hmm. because those are mm-hmm. the sides of my family and, and that kind of wave of black migration into LA in particular is so, so interesting to me. Um, so I've realized that I am, I think, uh, an L- a California writer in that way. Uh, but at the same time, like, yeah, I, I also love being in New York. I think it's kind of, I guess, a writer cliche to love both of those, those places yeah. maybe. But, but maybe um, it's, but- Maybe it's the same thing as like we you're, we were talking about the pandemic, like needing distance from it to sort of figure out what it means and to write about it with any kind of perspective. It's like the same thing. You had to leave L.A. to write about L.A. in the in another way, in a different way. I think so. And I think really, you know, the first time I re- really began to write about my hometown I'm from Oceanside, uh, which is like North San Diego. And the first mm-hmm. time I wrote about it was when I was in in college, which was in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I began, like, it was like that first moment of distance of not being at home and thinking like, oh yeah, it's kind of weird that I grew up in this beach town. And, you know, like, this isn't a thing that everybody grew up, you know, having surf PE at their high school. And that's not just like, <laughs> wait, no, wait, 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 hold up. You guys like gym was surfing. Yeah, there was, that was an option. I never took it, but yeah, there was surf <laughs> PE was a class. Um, and you had to, yeah, you had to get there. It was before school started. So you had to get there like super early to do it. And I was always just like, why would anybody want to be here <laughs> earlier? Uh, but yeah, that was a class. And that was just like a normal thing when I was in high school. And I didn't think of it as being like a strange thing until I got to college and would talk to people about the experience of growing up in this beach town. And everyone was just like, what? So, um, so that was the first moment I think I began to write about California or realize that I was consciously writing about California because I was writing about my very specific sort of part of California, which is Oceanside, right. um, which is not a part of California that most people know or really have written about. Although it is where American Vandal takes place. Um, so oh, is it first, really? The first season. Yeah, I've been trying to tell people there's an Oceanside Renaissance happening. Um, and I only, they said it has to be more than two things to be a Renaissance. So I said, okay, my okay. book, American Vandal. Those are the only two yeah. things. But well, yeah, done takes, you. So you got that nailed down. <laughs> they didn't you shoot it there. You are responsible for they, the Oceanside <laughs> Renaissance. <laughs> they didn't they didn't sh- it did it looked convincingly like Oceanside we were talking to friends about it everybody's like whoa they captured it pretty accurately I thought the vibe of it but of course they shot it in LA somewhere um but yeah but you know it's not a place that people know of really unless you're from San Diego like you've never really heard of it so, so but that was really why did your parents was- move to Oceanside like what did their 
is it like where your grandparents or great grandparents lived or was it just like your parents who said I know where we want to live we live on the beach by again <laughs> no it wasn't even that it was my dad got a job with the city so um so that's it was like not a not an interesting um reason but but yeah it was for his job so we moved there when I was like five and I grew up there um, but it's a military town and my nobody in my family was in the military so I stayed there my whole childhood until I was 18 I went off to college and I was one of the only people I knew who was like stable because everybody's kind of coming and going in these military towns so I was used to having kind of friends rotate in and rotate out as people's parents were being deployed or, or sent other ways. I, I grew up all over the place I was born in Israel and then my family's from Canada they're from Montreal so we went back to Montreal um, and then eventually moved to a bunch of different places in the states um and settled ultimately in New Jersey when I was like in middle school, we got there. So that's basically where I grew up. And I'm trying to imagine like it, it when I think about your ocean side, it has such, it, it has a kind of like magical gloss, which only to the reader and not to the person experiencing it, I'm sure. But like, I don't know what the magical gloss would be on Ridgewood, New Jersey. <laughs> I did put it, I did put the town in a book of mine. Like I did situate like the parents of a character in that town, but, uh, but not because of any residual thought. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think the funny thing to me about Oceanside is that my parents don't live there anymore. So I really don't go back often. Uh, but I did go back a few years ago and I had an event at the library there. And I met some friends from high school and everybody was telling me, you know, Oceanside has been gentrified since you wrote this book. And they were like, they have rock climbing walls now. They have, you know, uh, microbreweries. They have avocado toast. Like it has been gentrified. And my friends were like, yeah, the Oceanside that you wrote about in the book no longer exists. You captured like the Oceanside of our childhood that it like has, <laughs> like, has been gone. Um, and that was news to me. So I guess you never know uh, having that distance. I guess even when I was writing the book, I had, I was writing towards the past of growing up there that was already being changed, even though I didn't know it. So I guess that that is the strange thing, I guess, about writing about where you're from. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's what what writing is about period, right? Like it's all an exercise in nostalgia. Like even exactly. if it's, you know, it's limiting the depths of your nostalgia. Should we go to questions, Joel? Yes, hi. Wow, I'm so sad to interrupt your wonderful conversation, but we do have some questions I'd love to uh, give to, to both of you. Um, here's one uh, that we just got that is uh, directed at uh, Brit. Uh, Brit, both the mother, this is from Eileen, both the mothers and vanishing half dealt with very specific, unique characters grounded in a time and or place different from my world. And yet I identified so strongly with them. How do you go about finding the universal while still being so specific? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think one thing is that I'm usually not thinking about trying to make anything universal because I think that as soon as you try to do that, you fail at it. Um, you know, I, I, I remember taking a writing class and the professor asking like, who, like, who is, you know, who's your ideal audience or who's the audience for your book? Do you, who do you imagine to be the audience? And I remember having people in my class who I love them, but of course it was the white guys in the class who were like, everyone, the audience is everyone. <laughs> and I remember just like laughing about it with some of my friends at the kind of idea of that, of the audience for me is every person. Um, because obviously I would love for everyone to enjoy the book, come to the book, connect to the book. Um, but the idea that 
I am creating something that is going to be universally appealing or um, that I'm attempting to appeal to everyone in some way was always to me very kind of, you know, ridiculous. Uh, so I think there's for this me, great, I, I don't, I saw this tweet once, Brett, that said, um, <laughs> God, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> <laughs> Might be applicable yeah, I mean, to that situation. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we had a lot of the other sort of women in the class. We all had like a good laugh about that. Uh, but I just, you know, that idea that, that you can write something and of course my audience is every person. It's, you know, that's never a way that I've thought about my work. Um, so I think for me, it's one, it's just not attempting to do that. I think, I think that things do become specific uh, or they become universal when they are specific. Um, and to me, it's always about being as detailed as I can be and, understanding that readers are smart and also like I think readers are people and as as readers I include myself in that category we are wanting to connect to characters when we read we're wanting to see ourselves and people or, or to find um, connections from their experiences to our own so that's not something that I have to force or try to create you know I don't think it's something that I have to set out intentionally to do so I think for me the big thing is just being as specific and detailed as possible um, and understanding that readers will see common humanity and these characters and, and connect to them across difference. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Courtney asks, Ilet just mentioned, get my thousand words. We'd love to know from Brit and Ilet if they try to write with word count goals in mind, what works best for them? I mean, my, when I'm working on fiction or in it, um, I, I always, I try to get a thousand words and if, and sometimes I'll get a lot more, like a lot, sometimes a lot more. It depends where I am or what I'm doing, but a thousand words is kind of the bare minimum when I'm working on a novel. Otherwise, uh, I could just, you know, space out all day. And I have all sorts of different tricks to do that. Like I, I just started using this app called what that's called a Pomodoro, which means tomato in Italian. I don't know why it's called that. And it's a little timer and it gives you like, um, you focus for 25 minutes and take a five or 10 minute break. And that seems to be really good for me. Cause that's like a, um, I can get like a good chunk of a couple hundred words in that time. Um, so I do it like that. Unfortunately, you can't really do that when you're screenwriting. So when I'm screenwriting, I just do, um, something like uh, I'll, I'll give myself more of a page count, but I don't like that as much. Word count is really, you know, it's, it's really an effective method for me. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I used to do that. I think I kind of, I don't know. I have a point now where I try not to, I mean, maybe this is why it's taking me so long <laughs> to do these things, but I just try, I try not to create that kind of external pressure on myself. I think for me, it's more of like, it's more just like, how do I want to feel about this when I have reached a certain point? And sometimes it's like, like today I was working on something that was like a really intense emotional moment. And I was like, okay, all I want to do today is figure out this moment. And I don't know how many words that's going to be. I don't know how much of it I'm going to keep. I don't know how much of it is going to be useful, but like, this is like the thing. And once I get to the end of that, I will be like happy. And, and for me also, it's more of time. It's like, okay, I, I'm going to work until 10. I try to do like a seven to to 10 with like a break for for coffee and stuff but I try to do that some more and as long as I'm sitting down in the chair during that time if I do 100 words great if I do a thousand words great but I think for me that's kind of my marker of just like putting in the time and hoping that something 
hoping that something <laughs> comes comes out of it, which often it doesn't. Often it is you're sitting there staring at the screen for three hours. But I think that to me is how I have to how I have to deal with it psychologically. Got it. Thank you for answering that. I I, I do a page count. That's how I I go about it. Um, mm. <laughs> um, here's one uh, another one, Britt. Uh, um, I'm currently reading. This is from Maudlin. Um, I'm currently reading The Vanishing Half, and it's so good. One thing I notice is the strength of each character's voice. Uh, it would be interesting to know how you craft the voice of each character and how important would you say voice is, especially in The Vanishing Half? Thank you. Um, I think it's really important. Um, and I think it really depends. There's sometimes, um, for some characters, like there are some characters who I intentionally wanted to write sections and their point of view. Like sometimes I would write something directly in a first person, even though it ultimately ended up being third person in the book, but I would just write it in first person just to hear their voice and get a sense of kind of what the energy of their voice is. So sometimes there were, there were characters like that where it was very intentional to craft it. Um, and then other times there are other characters where you're just like, oh, this person, this is how they speak. This, this is the, the terms of endearment that they use. This is, you know, do they, are they, you know, dropping G's? Are they speaking in this way? Um, so some, and sometimes there are characters that just kind of their voice comes to you in that way of this is the sort of texture and the character of how they speak. Are they really sarcastic? Are they, you know, whatever, all of that sometimes comes to you in that way. Um, so it's a kind of a mixture of it, I think, but I think for this, for that book, it's a book that has so, a lot of characters really. Um, so it was important for me to make sure that all those characters sounded distinctly, uh, or distinct from one another, even if you were not directly in their consciousness, just to get that vibe from them and everybody having that, their own kind of flair. Thank you. Ayelet, there's a, there's another question here about, um, asking, do you have an Etsy for those uh, effing trunk uh, embroidery <laughs> samplers any anywhere no i don't because they were you know that's how i taught myself how to do embroidery they're very very bad <laughs> uh so but you know it's it's that's like the ultimate you too can embroider fuck trump on a piece of fabric <laughs> it's very easy and then you learn like it's how you learn all sorts of different stitches <laughs> Here's a new question for both of you. Um, so both of you have tackled important societal issues in your work, motherhood, mental health, race identity. How do you decide how much to use writing as a forum to push dialogue on such critical issues versus using writing as an escape or for fun or for yourself? I end up writing about stuff that matters because I care about stuff that matters, but I think it's pretty dangerous to be over, like you're just going to end up in a place of sort of didactic uh, I worry that I'm going to end up in a place of, of with that'll be too didactic. It won't be interesting for me. What like what matters is the characters and the story. So um, the larger political issue has to be organic to that. It has to actually make some kind of sense. And I think you do it best when you're not doing it on purpose. And then I have these other areas where I actually have an overt political agenda and that I do work that has political meaning, like editing the anthology that Britt wrote the beautiful essay for and that was a celebration of the centennial of the ACLU, or I also edited an anthology um, called Kingdom of Olives and Ash, which was about the occupation of Palestine. So that's where I do my sort of more overt political agenda. But I think like if you're, if you're interested in the world around you, you inevitably write about the world around you. And um, I don't know that I've ever really been interested in um, uh, okay. Uh, you know, the kind of 
incredibly interior novel that is just about one person and one person's relationship to herself as opposed to a person's relationship to the world and the people that she knows and loves and sees and um you know experiences so yeah i agree with that um i have always been interested in the novel as like a story stories that are about communities and and to me those are the types of novels i like to read and I like to write, um, which allows you to dovetail into those those sort of larger questions. Um, and I think I think I think about often is I, I heard Tiari Jones say this once, but the idea of writing about people and their problems versus problems and their people, and that's something I think that I always try to kind of keep in mind is like, yeah, you're starting with character, um, you're starting with being specific of who those characters are. Um, and then from there, maybe you're talking about these larger political or larger social conversations. But it's grounded in the character. It starts from that, not from starting with I'm, I want to write about X issue and then trying to find a character to assign that to. I think those are the books that feel really didactic. Mm -hmm. So, um, as you know, we're H26LA writing organization. We have a, our uh, sort of uh, chapter in it. H26 National is sort of the um, overseeing chapter of the organization, and they just put out a report which showed that reading is being emphasized more in schools than writing is. Um, this comes from Susan, by the way. Um, and as an organization that's dedicated to helping students with their writing skills, do you have ideas about what else we can do beyond helping kids with their writing skills to help kids, families, and schools increase a focus on writing? You know, so people, so many people just say- I don't want yeah. that. I no? don't want that at all. No. The worst <laughs> thing in the world is all these people who want to be writers who don't read. The way that you care about writing is by reading. You want children to read. Children who love reading will want to create their own writing. They'll start to do that. Like focusing on writing as if you're going to put those two in opposition to each other, make someone who loves the written word and who loves experiences and who loves reading it. And that person, then you can work on the skills of writing later, sort of the overt skills if they're writing, say, essays. But children who love to read will naturally want to create their own um you know, poetry, fiction. Um, I think setting them those up as, uh, if I had to choose between the two, I would take away their pencils and just give them all the books in the world. Um, <laughs> you know, you have all these, these this famous thing that, that um, the worst writers often will say, which is, oh, I, I don't like to read when I'm writing my novels because I don't want someone else's voice to influence <laughs> mine. Yeah, that would really suck if say Jane Austen or <laughs> James Baldwin influenced your voice. That would be terrible. You wouldn't want to get a little influence from those people because, you know, <laughs> I remember I, I was on a panel with a woman who wrote like the worst kind of shitty commercial, like uh, exploitation shopping, literally shopping novels. And she said that. And I was like, yeah, that would suck for you if you got a little like <laughs> Jane Austen, Britt Bennett in your work. Wouldn't that be terrible? It's just like nuts. It's madness. Um, <laughs> I believe uh, the only reason I write is because I love to read. Um, it's uh, I would so much prefer my children were readers than, you know, writers who didn't read. That would be terrible. Sorry. Yeah. Strong feeling about that. <laughs> Alternative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think also, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I don't work with young students. I, when I was teaching, I was teaching the college level. Uh, but the thing I guess I would be curious of for younger students is, you know, I think 
and I think it's true of college students too, but just like people like our student, I imagine that young students generally are writing a ton, just like in their day-to-day lives, you know, like maybe it's not, they're not sitting down to write short stories or something, but I think people are communicating, you know, maybe they're writing fan fiction, maybe they're, you know, blogging or whatever, maybe they're on, you know, I don't know how many kids are on Twitter, but whatever, whatever social media. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think many, but Somebody said Twitter is where old people go to talk about things that nobody else cares about, which I was like, yes, drag us. <laughs> um, so I don't know, you know, the forms, but there may be some other forms like that that are really uh, vibrant to them that are not like writing a research paper or something. So I think it also is interesting to think about what those other forms are where, where younger people are enjoying writing on their own, whether it's, you know, something, it may not be in a classroom, it may just be you know, it may just be a space. There's so many writers I know who started writing fan fiction and became novelists. And that's, that was their form of writing Harry Potter fan fiction. And now, you know, that's how you began sort of developing those skills to write, which doesn't happen in a classroom. It happens in this whole other online space. So I think there could be some way to think about what those other spaces are that already exist where young people are drawn towards creating um, that, that can be places where they also continue to develop those skills. I mean, when I have four kids and my youngest son had a very peripatetic high school experience, he went to a very good middle school where they taught, they did teach um, sort of basic essay skills, but of the four, he's definitely the best writer and he writes, um, he really likes to write um, sort of research papers. And the Mm -hmm. reason that he writes them well is because he's of the four of them, he's the one who reads the most uh, nonfiction and like political analysis and mm-hmm. hardcore journalism. And so he re- he's, he's trying to write the things he likes to read, which I think is mm-hmm. really what's the most important lesson. Like my daughter loves to write poetry, but she loves to write poetry because she loves to read poetry. And mm-hmm. um, whenever I'm finding that my, like I'll be working on a piece and I hate it or a novel that just isn't working or, and it just, and uh, my husband who's, you know, the fount of our wisdom will say to me, are you, would you want to read that book? And I'll be <laughs> like, well, no. And then I know that I'm not writing the right thing. Cause if you're not creating the right. thing that you want to consume, then inevitably you're not going to make it. Um, you're not going to give it the magic that you would need it to have. Right. Well said a lot of agreement on the, on the chat. Um, uh, here's one. So one last question uh, where time, time is up here. So uh, someone would like to know any recommendations, any reading recommendations, watching, listening recommendations. Britt, I'm kind of excited to hear a little bit more about your music stuff, if there's any recommendations around that. Um, but uh, yeah, throwing it out there as, as a final question. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess recommendations, this is obnoxious because this book isn't out yet, but I got an early copy of the new Colson Whitehead book, Harlem Shuffle, which is so much fun. Like it's, it feels it's a book that's about a heist and uh, in Harlem in like the 1960s. And it just feels like a, a nice, I mean, I, I have not finished with it yet. So maybe it's going to end in um, really intense tragedy, <laughs> but, but it feels like emotionally like a nice kind of break um, from his past two books, which were both really, I loved, uh, I loved both of those books that, but they were so emotionally intense and, um, so it's it's been nice to read this book about these like hustlers in Harlem all trying to like steal jewelry from this hotel. Um, so I've enjoyed that book. Uh, I'm enjoying that book right now. 
Um, and I just read The Final Revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton, which is a really fun debut. It's a fictional oral history of a rock and roll duo from the 60s. Um, so that book has been really fun. Um, and other listening, yeah, I've been yeah doing my podcast walks. So I'm, I'm really into You're Wrong About, which is uh, like a podcast that sort of debunks uh, our, our misinterpretations uh, of events from the past. I've been really into that one. Um, and Switched on Pop, which is a fun podcast that analyzes pop music. They have a, a musicologist and a songwriter who work together to tell you how songs are put together. And as a person who does not have any musical ability, but just enjoys music, it's really fun to understand like, oh, this is why that is good. Um, when, when you just thought as a person listening to it, you liked it. So it's nice to have that language for understanding how, how music and how songs actually work. Um, I am reading the a new biography, new-ish biography of Joan Didion. And like I said, I'm not a huge fan of nonfiction, just for whatever reason, I don't read it that much. Um, but I am really, really loving this, um, this particular biography. It's called The Last Love Song. And it's written by Tracy Darty. And um, it, you know, it's interesting right now, uh, we've discovered that the guy who wrote the Philip Roth biography, which already seemed like a terrible book, um, is himself a rapist. Yay. Nice. And um, uh, and I would say, like, if you want to actually read a really good literary biography that actually delves into the work itself and is incredibly beautifully written and interesting, uh, try this one. Try this Joan Didion biography. So I'm really loving that. It's really beautiful. Wonderful. Well Thank you both so much for your time, for being here, for your support of HU6 LA. Uh, really appreciate it. I know that our well, friends- Well, thank you guys for what you do. HU6 is a miraculous organization and we're so grateful to all of you for you know, giving it your all all the time. Thank you for your amazing support. You've been a, a part of this for such a long time. I know you were one of the earlier, earliest supporters, so thank you. Great, thank you so much for your time as well. This episode was brought to you as part of our Breakthrough podcast series. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up. I'm Magdalena Morsi and I'll see you next time.